Hello and welcome to ClassicalPodcast.com. I'm Lou Smoley, and I'm here to tell you that more than 10 years, we have been streaming free programs of classical music not often heard in the concert hall or on other podcasts or radio programs, and this is all thanks to your generous donations. In order to ensure that our unique programs continue, we appreciate your ongoing support. We welcome donations, large or small, and remind you that because we are a nonprofit organization, your contributions are fully tax-deductible. Thank you so much for helping us to make ClassicalPodcasts.com one of the most listened-to websites of its kind in the world. Hello and welcome to this edition of What's New in Classical Music. I'm Lou Smoley. And I'm delighted to have with us our old friend, uh, Simon Weinberg, uh, who has been with us now, uh, as we had just mentioned to each other, uh, for, uh, now for the third time. Uh, and he is the artistic director, as you may recall, of the ARC Ensemble, a group of musicians who record, of course, primarily chamber music. Uh, but we are focusing on a series of recordings that um, Mr. Weinberg ha had directed uh, called Music in Exile. And I won't say another word about that. I'm going to leave that uh, to, to Mr. Weinberg. But uh, for that, welcome, Simon. Thank you for having me, Lou. It's so a pleasure. It, it, it's delightful. Uh, I, I, I want to make one remark before you tell us a little bit about the background of the series. First, just to, for those who have not been at the other two programs, they at least have a sense of, of what this is all about. Uh, and, and that is that uh, uh, you, you record on the Chandos label, uh, and so the recordings, I think, are generally available. And the one that we're going to feature today uh, is, I think, just about to, if not already has been, released. Uh, and so we look forward to that. And I'll mention before uh, I, I give the mic, as it were, to you, Simon, um, that our featured composer, whose music uh, is on this CD we're going to talk about, is Dmitry Klebanov, a name that might not be familiar to many of you. Simon, again, welcome. Thanks for having me here. Now, uh, Tell me a little bit about the background of this Music in Exile series. What, what was the purpose of it when, when you, it was generated, and what do you hope to accomplish, and what do you have accomplished? Well, this, um, the Arc Ensemble um, has been around now for nearly 20 years. Um, and when I was asked to put the ensemble together, uh, the purpose of the ensemble is to act as a, um, as a as a kind of PR vehicle in a way for the, for the Royal Conservatory of Music here in Toronto um, to show off the considerable talents of its members um, who are all uh, teachers, senior teachers at the conservatory. And they all have their own individual careers, either as uh, first desk players in major orchestras or um, as uh, soloists and ensemble players. So the, the question was, once this ensemble was assembled, what were they going to play and um, how were we going to uh, 
construct their future. And uh, to begin with, this was something that um, we had to fiddle around with for a year or two. And then we did a series devoted to uh, music of the Holocaust, which I, I thought was a um, you know an unusual idea. Um, but of course, uh, these the sorts of uh, two or three day events dedicated to the music of Terezin and the like are, are, are really fairly common. So um, we moved on from that. And um, I, I have a history as a, as a musicologist. And what really excites me personally is discovering new repertoire. Uh, not that I have anything against the standard repertoire, but I think that we tend to focus on works that um, are recorded and re-recorded and uh, embedded in the repertoire. And I think, you know, any examination of concert programs from around North America, certainly um, it's very difficult for me to find something that I'm not already familiar with. Simon, I'm going to interrupt for a minute. Please yeah. Forgive me because I want to, mention that our, our listeners know, but you may or may not know that our classical podcasts programs are devoted to new music that's not often heard or should be Absolutely. more appreciated. And that's, uh, that, I know that's one of the reasons why I'm here. Yeah. But um, it, it, you know, it, was, it, it, it was a process um, when we were we were going to give a, a an identity to the ensemble. Uh, I thought that um, in in light of all the music that had been suppressed and lost and marginalised in the wake of um, the Second World War, um, I thought there was there was so much material that no one really had looked at that, um, and we started with with. Um, Mrs. Weinberg, uh, who obviously now is very much part of the repertoire. I mean, everything is, of his has almost been recorded, and sometimes more than once. So, um, but when we when we began, uh, there were no recordings of the, uh, the the wonderful piano quintet. Mm -hmm. So we that was our first recording, and it was nominated for a Grammy, and everyone was very excited by it, and um, and then. Now looking back on it, the, the, I think there are about a dozen recordings of the of the piano quintet, mm -hmm. which kind of proves my point in a way that you come up with something that's new to the repertoire, and if it's really good, uh, it's it's simply repeated. So, mm -hmm. but we moved we moved on and we started looking at all sorts of other composers, and as the years have gone by, I've developed uh, more of a familiarity. With some of these lost works, and um, we, when our uh, commitment to Sony ran out, we um, we started off again with with Chandos, and they wanted to have a series that w would be ongoing, that um, that that could you know persist over time, and and not have a a particular beginning and end, to, and that's what I wanted too, because we, we we wanted something that we could rely on on an ongoing basis. So, um, the the Klebanov is our fifth recording, and in a way, it's a little bit different from the others in that um, 
all our previous recordings have been direct casualties, if you like, of World War Two. Mm. Whereas Klebanov is a uh, was a victim of uh, Soviet interference, mm. um, but, but he, you know, he 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 nearly lost his life. Certainly could have been imprisoned, and the title of the series is indeed Music in Exile rather than Composers in Exile. Mm. And if you look at the Soviet Union, um, it really was a question of music in exile because you know the, the rules around what you could and couldn't uh, produce was, um, was a control of music rather than the composers were in Nazi Germany. There were people who were writing all sorts of things, um, and providing they weren't Jewish, they could probably probably get away with it. Um, they wouldn't get any performances, and they would be um, they would be criticised. But um, it was nothing like the sort of uh, control that the Soviet Union had on their artistic community. So um, that's, in a nutshell, the the history of. Uh, of the Ark Ensemble, and... Uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, uh, you mentioned uh, what Klebanov had gotten himself in trouble with, um, uh, and I think that that's worthy of a story by itself, as a segue into his life and what, what uh, happened to him uh, and why you chose him, beside being one composer that fits the mission um, uh, so quickly. Uh, tell us about what, what happened at the time that, well, if I can say it this way, Klebanov, I didn't pronounce it that way beforehand, but um, had gotten himself in trouble. And why? Well, he, um, he composed his first symphony um, after the war. Mm -hmm. And um, he dedicated it to the victims of um, the, the awful massacre um, at um, Babi Yar, at Babi Yar, okay. and he he dedicated to to the memory of of you know the, the the people who had died there. And in the work itself, there are a couple of uh, allusions to Jewish ish music. Mm. Um, there's a soprano who sings a kind of lament in the third movement, and there's there's a, an oboe solo that sounds um, something like a shofar. Um, and um, having spoken to his son Yuri, who sadly died earlier this year, um, he, you know, he, he Klebanov himself saw himself as a, as a Ukrainian and and as a Jew, even though he he wasn't a, a practicing Jew as such. Uh, but when he wrote the symphony, it was uh, it was successfully performed in um, in Kiev and also in uh, uh, Kharkiv, where where he where where uh, Klebanov lived, and it was repeated a couple of times. And then it, I think it was uh, submitted for a Stalin Prize. Um, I don't know whose idea that was, but it did not go well. <laughs> um, and it, this was at a at a time in the Soviet Union where anti-Semitism was, um, was really growing. Um, Stalin had got it into his mind that, um, as, as, as people do, that, that the Jews were to blame um, for, for all, all the ills. And, the, and um, he, what he did was the, um, 
the, the work was immediately banned. Yeah. And uh, Nina, who is uh, Klebanov's wife, immediately went to Moscow to uh, plead for her husband. And it was clear that something awful was going to happen to him. And I think it was Nina's intervention, certainly Yuri said this, that it was Nina's intervention that, that prevented him from being sent off to a gulag or, um, or imprisoned or, uh, or even shot. Mm. So um, the, the, the piece was, was withdrawn um, and it wasn't played again for decades. Um, and it's it's not a bad work. I mean, it's not a. Uh, I don't think it's a great work. And what is extraordinary about it is that there are no. That it's not really what you would call a Jewish work. When you listen to it, you don't think, oh, you know, that yeah, definitely. There's all the, um, the signs of uh, Ashkenazic music, and mm. it, there's nothing like. There are just a few allusions. So really, what the uh, authorities were complaining about was the fact that it was dedicated to a Jewish community who had suffered rather than um, dedicated to, say, the, so the, the Soviet losses during World War II. That would have been acceptable. But taking a, a Jewish community and, and uh, making it a separate area of suffering was, was not permissible. So that, uh, um, that really marooned uh, Klebanov, um, in terms of his career. And it took him a good, you know, 15 to 20 years to uh, reintegrate into the uh, music world. Well, you know, it's interesting, of course, that uh, in a way, Klebanov anticipated uh, what Shostakovich did with Yevtushenko and the poems on Bobby Yar. And it, it wasn't really that... that much later, about seven years or so, eight years, that Shostakovich wrote his his thirteenth. Uh, I think it was was that sixty three. I'm not sure. I can't remember. Maybe maybe it was later than I thought. But uh, yeah, and uh, uh, times were changing already uh, for uh, Russian artists. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, that's where I think it's interesting to find out from you. All right. Uh, there was the, this condemnation. We, much of, uh, of the facts of the, the Stalinist repressions of the 30s we, we know about, um, and uh, they created an atmosphere which was severe and really life-threatening uh, for artists in the Soviet Union. <clears throat> you know, but then comes the part that uh, Klebanov plays in all this that I find interesting. Tell us about that. Um, can, can you elaborate? Yeah, well, I, in other words, it was my understanding, of course, that all of the, the criticism, uh, you know, Stalin is not the type to say things directly. <laughs> Probably the more, the more indirect human being as a leader uh, I've never come across. Um, very, he was very, um, uh, you know, attempts to to put on a, a smiling face while he was ready to, to slaughter somebody. But uh, I understood that the Soviet Composers Union had a lot of, of the, the, the intermediary uh, uh, force and authority uh, to, to, as it were, enforce uh, the, these decisions. And, and that, was, that was the body that, um, uh, that came down hard on Klebanov and... Uh, 
pulled his work, and he he also lost his job at the uh, right. um, at the Kharkiv um, mm. Conservatory, where he had trained and where he was working, and but that was. Um, yeah, that was a major, a major setback. Uh, it wasn't. It, it, it sounded like he was almost chosen <clears throat> to be the the, the 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 representative of the of those who were being criticized. Uh, yeah, I, I I think I think that's true. Um, certainly, I've I've read that that uh, you know they needed someone they needed someone's head on a, on a stick and. Yeah. Uh, um, Klebanov, and also the fact that he was Ukrainian, mm. did not help him um, yeah. because there was all there was always this antipathy for uh, Ukrainian mm. artists. And it was generally believed in Moscow that you know the Ukrainians, you know, they had their folk music, um, and um, and they were pretty good at that. But you know, don't 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 mess with us when it comes to uh, you know the grown-up stuff. Mm. We can do that. You, you guys are, uh, um, you know living in the boonies and we we're not really uh, we don't really rate you yeah. so there was this there was this real anti-ukrainian feeling which you know persists today in, in, in many ways but so then comes salvation i mean he, he was despite all of the pressures despite all of the threats despite all of of the uh, denunciation uh he was able to escape severe punishment uh although for a composer, severe punishment means you can't write what you want, <laughs> and uh, uh, so he conformed, uh, like I guess Shostakovich in a way did too, to some degree. Um, I I don't know this first of May symphony that's referred to in, in, in the literature. Um, the pity is there's only one symphony uh, that I have. I don't know if there's ever been any other one recorded. The number three. But uh, uh, the, the issue here is how much, really, did he try to retain, if anything, from his well, from what he wrote before this happened to him? You know, I have to say I know about the chamber music, but mm. um, there's a huge wealth of vocal material, much of it unpublished, mm. um, which was in the which was in Yuri's possession. Um, mm. uh, I, I have scans of, of most of it. If anybody wants uh, mm. um, Klebanov's uh, vocal material, uh, I mm. have quite a lot of it. Um, mm. And I'm, I'm really not familiar with that repertoire and the symphonic rep, and neither am I really familiar with with his um, oeuvre as a, as a symphonist. Mm. But what I can tell is that he, he did both things simultaneously. He satisfied the authorities um, when there was money on the table and he got a commission. And then when it came to things like uh, the string quartets, for example, the fifth and sixth string quartets, he he did pretty well what he wanted to do, what, what he wanted to. And, you know, one has to realize that after 1953, when, when Stalin died, uh, Things eased up immediately. Uh, there, there wasn't that sort of feeling that um, if you wrote something awful, you, you were going to die, and that, and that easing continued. Um, yeah. it, it, you know, the worst that could happen to you really was that um, you know you wouldn't have a career and you wouldn't get performances. But that, 
uh, existential threat lifted. Certainly, yeah. you know, by the by by the late fifties, sixties, it was pretty much um, open open season in terms of what you wanted to write. Um, but there was one thing writing for the draw, and another thing writing for public performance. So. Um, the best example that I can give of this is when you look at um, Clebano's piano quintet. And the piano quintet was written um, for the great, uh, it, it celebrated the great uh, union of, uh, of Russia and Ukraine. And this was really Russia taking over Ukraine, you know, 200 or 300 years prior to this. Um, the Treaty of Periaslav, I think it's called. I may have got that wrong. Anyway, um, he wrote this piano quintet clearly on order, and it's it's absolutely bombastic and dreadful. I mean, it's it's a piece that he probably wrote, you know, in a couple of days. Um, it's uh, it, it really is not not a piece that you would consider performing if you were a, you know a serious ensemble. In fact, uh, I got the the ensemble together when we were reading through the various works and um, they they read through the, the first, uh, the, they, they did a first reading of the, of the piano quintet and they kind of looked at me and they said, this guy is really, really we're wasting our time here. Mm. Let, you know, let, let's do something else. Um, and I said, well, hang on a minute. Um, this was written for a, spe for a specific reason, a specific purpose. And... Um, and if you if you listen to it, um, you'll hear that he's actually uh, he he's he's basically I think the expression is cocking a snook at <laughs> at the authorities. He he's sort of saying um, yes, this is this is what you're getting. Um, I'm a I'm a Ukrainian nationalist, and th this is the crap that I'm dealing that I'm dishing up to you mm. because it it. it um, it really is. It is so off the chart, bombastic, and and silly. Um, in a way, it it, it it almost steps over the line. Mm -hmm. um, well, so then, then, I'm sorry. Having, having realized that, they 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 read through the the piano trio, mm -hmm. and of course, that's a completely different way. It's just written four years later, but it's a a really serious long, substantial, uh, beautifully composed piece. And, um, and that's the real, that was the real Klebanov, obviously. Mm -hmm. Well, during the fall, then, that he experienced, uh, you know, some, there are aspects that we here don't, outside of, of Russia, don't realize, I think. And that is that when you have as large a, a country as Russia, and the Ukraine combined. And you have a lot of people who had ambitions as composers during the, pre, the prior period when there was criticism and danger and, and so on, um, released now. Now suddenly, at least theoretically, able to write what they please. Uh, I'm not sure how true that is, but there is still a, a lot of relief. Uh, and and uh, then I, I understood that left a composer like uh, Klebanov in a strange position. Um, here he was writing his music. He had a history, which we haven't discussed 
uh, he had about what he was writing beforehand, before the 30s even, um, uh, if anything of, of, of significance. But um, now comes all the deluge of, of music or the interests of deluging the society with as much personal and individual music as composers can vet. Uh, and uh, it created a lot of confusion, didn't it? Um, yeah, I, <clears throat> you know, I have to admit my, I think that the the history of, of the Soviet Union and and into what is now uh, Russia is is so massively complex, mm. and I think there's so many composers who have been marginalized and forgotten. And um, I've heard reports of, of you know libraries in Ukraine where, where you know there are boxes and boxes of scores that um, have yet to be catalogued and uh, let alone scanned. But uh, you know there's there's just acres of music that mm -hmm. are waiting to be researched and, and recovered. And um, the, these libraries aren't well-funded and they don't have the kind of uh, facilities that, you know, one has in, in, in North America. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know whether they're the, the same sorts of programs uh, for research and, uh, and, you know, resuscitation of this music. Mm -hmm. uh, I do know that when Klebanov was uh, was able to write what he well, I clearly what he wanted to write when I when I think of say the the, the fifth string quartet, which is on the recording, mm -hmm. where, in, where where he ventures into you know bitonality and a bit of polytonality, and there's mm -hmm. some um, dissonance. There's a sort of dissonance that one simply doesn't find in works uh, you know ten twenty years earlier. Um, Yes, he's he's kind of arrived at a place that uh, he feels he can do what he likes. But the you know the pieces were published the the, the fourth, fifth, and and sixth string quartets were published in score in nineteen seventy two. There weren't any parts, um, and so they weren't re they weren't really available. They certainly weren't available prior to nineteen seventy two. And after 1972, I don't think they were particularly available either. They were available as, as a kind of study score, but um, as far as I can tell, no available parts. Mm. So um, despite the fact that he was able to write what he wanted to write, um, he wasn't able to have the music disseminated. Yeah. And that I think that later changed um, in, the, in the later 70s um, and into the 80s that there was some... There were certainly broadcasts of his works in in Ukraine, mm -hmm. um, but one has to take a step back and look at the language that he used. And in a sense, when you think what was going on in Europe in the seven in the in the seventies, um, the works that he was writing towards the end of his life are. I mean, they're they're very. I suppose one would see them as as uh, almost reactionary, retrogressive. They weren't. Um, they weren't certainly of their time. If one is looking at uh, European uh, tradition, it's one thing that I I've often thought about that 
the mere fact that one changes the politics that affect composition uh, to free them of, of such severe restraints and get rid of the modernisms, so-called, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that composers left, as it were, hanging uh, in midair at, at the beginning of the fall um, were going to produce m miraculously uh, different music. Um, they'd either yeah. go back to, some, like Shostakovich did, I think, a little bit, go back to some aspects of his development that he had to stop furthering uh, because of the problems he had. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering about Klebanov. I mean, what was Klebanov's music like? What was the style he was writing in before he was subjected to this criticism in the early years? Well, um, one thing I, I said, uh, I'm thinking of the the, the fourth string quartet, mm -hmm. which is um, it, it's it's wonderfully accessible, mm -hmm. um, well balanced, beautifully written, um, wonderful writing for strings. Um, but it, it it's it's accessible, but it does have a um, it does have a quality. It has uh, it's it's not the kind of uh, work that I was talking about earlier with regard to the, the piano quintet. Um, so it was fresh. It was um, it, it was very appealing, and it also relied on uh, Ukrainian folk material, mm -hmm. and that was uh, it, it was I think a, 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 a tricky uh, road to hoe for him because. Um, he used the the music of Leontovich, who was a, a Ukrainian nationalist who was killed by um, uh, the uh, the Cheka, the uh, security police, mm -hmm. and uh, he he was much admired by uh, Klebanov, and he quotes at least two of his works in the in the fourth string quartet. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, and and he dedicated the the string quartet to mm -hmm. to Leontovich. Yeah. We're going to hear a little uh, of that so, later. Yes, you know one wonders. I mean, here's here's a a, a guy who's killed by the state, although it was several years before, uh, who was a Ukrainian nationalist, just like um, Klebanov was, and and he's dedicating the string quartet to him. You you know you kind of wonder. Uh, was he was he compelled to sort of uh, you know drive in the fast lane and 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 risk um, and at a, at a very high speed and and risk all sorts of uh, comeuppance from the authorities? Uh, I, I'm not I'm not sure, but it's the the work itself is is um, is gorgeous. It really is. Well, maybe we should uh, start our listening. We're going to have some excerpts to play from the recording. Uh, and I didn't intend to do this, but I think in light of what you've said, it makes sense to play at least a movement from the fourth string quartet from 1946, uh, the, the scherzo movement, uh, for you. At least you get an idea, even though it's a brief movement, you get a sense, uh, the audience will, of what the music is like 
that you're talking of, and this is of course 1946, so uh, it's, it's yet before the Stalin era is over and the thaw is, is generated. Uh, so uh, let's do that the, with, of course, the ARC ensemble. I should mention the names of the soloists, uh, and they are, uh, with a little help from Simon, Erica Raum, the violinist, Maria Berard, second violinist, Stephen Dunn, Miola, and Thomas Weber, or Weeb, I think it's Weeb you have told me, um, the cellist. This is the scherzo movement from this fourth string quartet by Dmitry Klebanov.
Yes. So um, what I wanted to mention, of course, is that uh, during the war and just after it, um, Jews were in a in a not as bad a place as they were several years later. Uh, Stalin had sent uh, the um, a, a committee of of, uh, of Jews to the United States to raise money for the Soviet Union, and uh, he wanted to demonstrate that Jews were equitably looked after, and there was no uh, anti-Semitism in Soviet Union, and that was all fine. And so in 1946, um, things were looking quite rosy, really, for Klebanov, um, until, of course, the uh, inevitable happened with his, uh, his first symphony. So this is, uh, you know, the, the, the quartet is, is extraordinarily fresh, and it's become um, a regular part, or the first movement has become a regular part of ensembles in 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 Ukraine, there are um, orchestras of uh, bayans and of um, uh, all sorts of di different instruments that play this piece uh, based on Leontovich's uh, 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 Shedrick, which is now known in the West as uh, Carol of the Bells. I'm sure everybody recognised the, the uh, will recognise the the theme if they hear it. And isn't that supposed to be uh, imitative at least of the this Hungarian bagpipe, which I won't dare to pronounce? Uh, oh, the doodle, the doodle sack. Doodle, um, yeah, Duda. Um, yeah, I, I think that there, there's a part in it which is supposed to um, uh, imitate the, the Duda, or it's, or it's derived from that. But mm -hmm. it's, it, the first movement is certainly uh, based on uh, Leontovich's Shedrick. Uh, 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 mm -hmm. It's a very folk, folkish kind of piece, naturally. Uh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. The, yeah, the dance music uh, all over the place, and and that wonderful pizzicato opening, which I found marvelous because it's not one of those things where the composer said, "Well, right, now I'm going to write like some others a movement to be played by strings pizzicato throughout." No, he has a, a, an opening episode and it returns, but there is this complete changeover of, of, of the way of expressing the music uh, frequently in this short movement. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I was very impressed with that. Uh, now we they, let's, they play really well too. They do. They are, yeah, definitely <laughs> throughout the. Well, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll make a general statement. Uh, in the recordings we've we've presented, uh, they played very well throughout. I mean, they, this is a good group you have, uh, and I, I, I'm glad to see that they're devoting themselves to I think what what is a worthy cause: music that people don't know, that's worthy of a hearing. Yep. Now uh, let's let's go on then uh, to uh, the second piece. I wanted to play the, uh, as you did, I believe the, uh, the another scherzo movement. This one from the trio number two that's on the recording, which was written around 1958. Uh, the uh, I think if, unless you want to say something preliminarily about the trio. Uh, we can just put it on. Any any words yeah, of wisdom? Yeah, let's listen to the trio. Okay.
Again, interesting opening. Am, am I wrong in, 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 in hearing Spanish music at the beginning, or is that just my ear and how I? I think that may be your. I think that may be your ears, yeah. Lou, but uh, you know, it's very strange. <laughs> we're all different, that's for sure. Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 because it's not unusual, or maybe in Eastern Europe, absolutely uh, for Europeans yep. to. Uh, although it is not true, as as I think my program on piano music. Uh, from Spain will show, I don't think it's been released yet, that um, there are very few <laughs> Spanish composers. That's just not so. Uh, but nevertheless, the French took it up. Uh, and, but Eastern Europeans, I, I don't recall many that had that in them. Even Sibelius did from a, a more, you know, in the Western uh, part of Europe. But... Um, well, well, always... Um well, I think one always underestimates the influence of other cultures mm. on on individual music. Um, I, 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 I'm always I'm always aware that um, I mean, composers are, are generally very curious people, mm. and um, and so you often find things that uh, you, you know you wouldn't expect influences that that seem to come out of nowhere. Um, I mean, I've experienced, I experienced that j just recently with a, with a composer that we're working on. So, I, I mean, I, I don't want to dismiss the possibility of Spanish influence at all. Um, well, it but, might have been very personal and not part of his, his life story. Um, yeah. uh, but there is also, I, I've made a note about strumming, uh, that seems to be a familiar, mm. a familiar aspect of, or, or a, a significant aspect uh, of yes. this, this movement. Uh, so, be that as it may. Uh, before, well, let's play the third piece we're going to do. I think that's worthy because it's different. It's later. Now we're going to we're talking about the string quartet number five, which is the the um, latest piece on the recording, 1966. Uh, it was written. Uh, we're going to hear a more substantial movement, the first movement, um, and here is where the question rises, and I want you to put this in your mind, Simon, if you would. Uh, now we have 
outside of the dance music and outside of the of the folkish kind of thing, we have a, a, a serious movement, something more substantial, something uh, that uh, gives the composer a chance to express the, uh, the certain other, as I say, more serious characteristics of his style, uh, and uh, that's what I want to concentrate on, if you might, if you if you will, in talking about this movement. So let's go ahead and listen uh, to the string quartet number five, first movement, uh, again by Dmitry Klebanov, uh, performed by the ARC Ensemble.
Simon, words of wisdom? Um, yeah, I, 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 when the gang played through this, um, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult quartet to, to do justice to when you're reading it for the first time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so my, my first reaction to it was, um, I you know, I really need to, to listen to this again. And, um, we really need to burrow into this work because, uh, the, you know, the fourth quartet reveals itself instantly. You, you know, exactly what you're listening to, you know, even if the intonation is, uh, is a bit peculiar and people are coming in wrong or whatever. But, um, when you get something that is, um, much more dense and much more, um, advanced harmonically, it's much more difficult to make an educated decision about quality and, um, you know, whether it's a, a suitable work to include. You, you really have to uh, look at it for a while and reflect on it. And I mean, just, I mean, the, just that the opening, the opening interval of that um, quartet, I mean, it has to be perfectly in tune mm -hmm. and, um, and it, well, it is on the recording, but, uh, you know, the, these are the sorts of things that, um, you, you know, are, are, they, can, they can lead you astray because when you hear things that, uh, um, on first hearing that they, they don't seem to work, you, you need to work on it to, to make sure that uh, it's you that are failing rather than the composer. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, because this is, you know, this is a kind of standard reaction of people who um, don't understand a piece of music. They, they immediately say, oh, it's crap. You know, I don't, I don't like this at all. It's, uh, they, they don't assume that there's something wrong with them and that they're not in a position to appreciate it. They immediately assume that the composer has, yeah. has, has, uh, has failed them. Um, it's, you know, there's a very, obviously a very common um, reaction. And so when we came to the fifth quartet, um, my, immediate my immediate assumption was, um, uh, you know, was, uh, well, I have, to, I have to give this its, its due and not assume that the, the composer suddenly didn't know what he's doing. In fact, it's a, it's a, it's a really well-wrought and um, uh, well-composed uh, piece of music. Well, it does uh, hang together, and the fact that it, that it, it hangs together throughout so many uh, changes of mood, changes of tempo, uh, it, it's a, a, a fairly complex piece uh, in that respect, and, and the longest piece on, on, of the work, which I think is not unusual for, for Klebanov, if I, if I remember rightly. Um, but um, what, what fascinated me was that... Uh, you know, you juxtapose this movement against the one we heard uh, uh, from the fourth string quartet, and although there are 20 years or so that separate the pieces, um, you do get a sense of, of change. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, you, you know, you're tempted to think, you know, this is this was actually written by a different composer. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, it, I mean, it is a... a, a and and the the, the 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 trio, of course, the piano trio in the middle, is the um, 
I wouldn't say describe it as, as, as a missing link, mm. but you can see the development from the fourth quartet to the piano trio to the fifth quartet as, um, as, as I suppose, both an expansion of his uh, compositional ability, but also an expansion of the freedom that he had to compose what, uh, what his heart uh, dictated he wanted to write. There's something special, in my mind, about post-World War II Eastern European and Farther East, like Russian, Ukraine, so on, orientation toward composition. I mean, there's both the composer, the craftsman, the one who will tell you, because he wants you to think so, uh, that this is music and it's no more than music, um, and yet he or she knows full well, I suspect, that there is an internal emotive quality, uh, an orientation, if you will. Now, all of these people have lived through one extreme or the other of what happened in the Soviet world. Uh, and Americans, I think, having not, unless they were in Europe before they came here, um, they, they, I don't think, respect often enough what I sense as a, a kind of cloud that, that, that hangs over a lot of lyrical music, a lot of even light music some sense that there's been suffering and that either this is a way that I can overcome that in my music, uh, even if not completely, or this is a way that I can finally, to some extent, with some restraint, express that underlying history that has to have had a tremendous impact, not just on your personal situation, uh, your home life, your family, and so on, but your art. Absolutely. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, I think there's there's a seriousness with which uh, Russians, even today, um, treat their their music and their culture, yeah. uh, which is very different from the way North Americans would. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there, there's a kind of a, a dedication and a feeling that, um, the, the, and a respect for the people who are involved in it, that is um, is very deep. And uh, I think with um, uh, w with the kind of suffering and the, the the sort of negotiations one had to do with both with oneself and with uh, the authorities. I think that made the um, the creation of works. Um, it, it gives it gives them a, a kind of um, an importance and a significance that we that we don't in in the West really appreciate. When you think of what uh, what Klebanov went through, he he was. Um, during the war, he was uh, sent off to, to well, he he emigrated to to Tashkent with a lot of people, mm -hmm. um, where he spent the war. Then he came back, and he was uh, he was living in a in a a basement in um, in Kiev, 
which you know was infested with rats mm. and that's where um, Yuri spent the first couple of years of his life and then back to um, uh, to Kharkiv and and the whole experience with the first symphony and the pressures on him to inform on people and to um, to join the party um, I mean all these things form a, an existential background mm -hmm. to one's life if you're living in, in the Soviet Union at the time. There, there's very little in the North American ex com composer experience that comes, that comes close to that. And so I think by definition, um, the, the music, as you say, has this kind of, um, a kind of cloud over it or a, um, an intensity. Mm. Um, and certainly, one one can sense that in in in, in Shostakovich's work, and I think you can sense it in Kerbanov's as well. You know, I used to think that that kind of music with that kind of orientation, uh, so different, as you've explained, from other uh, general ways of communicating in music uh, it, on a contemporary basis. Uh, has not just so much to give, but the world of the 20th century would be literally incomplete if we did not have that kind of expression. It's not just necessarily Russians or Ukraine uh, or any of the Eastern European countries. Um, I get a lot of that even vicariously in, in Scandinavia today in the writing of, for, orchest for orchestras um, and vocal writing. Uh, and um, that shows to me that composers, I don't know if, if it's uniquely so, but composers are sensitive to what happened to the human race in the 20th century. And in a way, as subtle as it can be sometimes, maybe that's to its advantage, we must keep listening to this. It's not made for our entertainment. It is made for edification. And I think that because your program, your series, is devoted to many composers who have been there and had that problem. Absolutely. Um, it is uniquely important uh, to, to continue the series. Uh, and and I, you know, I wish you well. In fact, it, it brings me now to a question uh, that I planned on asking you anyway at the end of the program, which is, uh, what's next? Well, in December, we are about to record the first ever um, album devoted to the chamber music of one Alberto Hemsi, who was a Sephardic, he came from a Sephardic family, um, was born in a, a, a little town just east of uh, Izmir, which used to be Smyrna. And um, he was trained at the Verdi Conservatory and his reputation now rests on a set of Coplas uh, Sephardi, which is a, mm. it's a group of around 60 songs that he uh, developed piano accompaniments for. And the piano accompaniments are, I suppose they, they, they're reminiscent of uh, uh, Granados and Defia mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and Ravel possibly. Um, so they're, they're virtuosic accompaniments. And I heard these and thought, 
I wonder whether there's any chamber music there. And of course, there there is, and it's it's absolutely it's riveting stuff. Um, That's very exciting. So the next recording is is devoted to Alberto Hemsi, mm -hmm. and um, that'll be out, I suppose, round about this time next year. In a bit of luck. Excellent. Uh, any other comments about the future of the series? Well, of the group? Um, I, you know, I have another two composers lined up following Hempsey that I'm busy researching, and uh, we're doing the odd uh, reading session. And uh, the ensemble has got some some tours planned to um, to Italy next year, and, and probably Israel in tw 2023, which um, stops along the way. So, uh, yeah, now that we're gradually moving out of this awful COVID thing, which, uh, which took the life of uh, Yuri Klebanov, uh, Dmitry's mm. son, which was a huge, a huge loss for me. I, I'd never met the man, but we'd spent a lot of time talking and, and corresponding. And he was incredibly helpful mm. with, the, um, with assembling the album and just getting me material and stuff. Um, so it was a, it was a, a major loss. Um, mm when um when he passed away in march so uh yeah but now that, that that things seem to be uh coming something like back to normal although um one wonders where the one's going to be living with this for you know the next i don't know how many years but um at least <clears throat> we can we can begin to start moving around and start playing concerts again yes hopefully hopefully um, you know, there is a certain, may I dare say, therapeutic aspect to such kinds of musical expression, uh, particularly among those people who are, don't have the gift of, of art creation, uh, but have the experience. But for all, for all of us, for all of us, we, we are at our best when we don't shy away from or weaken from experiencing, you know, vicariously, of course. I mean, nobody wants pain and suffering uh, directly, but uh, it's a healthy thing, I think, for us. And I'm not trying to characterize any music that you've, you've presented thus far as being wholly that, but to experience vicariously this, this negative aspect of human existence uh, that uh, was a major factor uh, in the 20th century for a lot of people all over the world. Uh, yeah. And we are should be grateful, I think, um, to have had some composers, notwithstanding uh, rejection, uh, threat, fear, um, enforcement of, of policy or whatever, uh, still somehow managed to get across in their art uh, what was like what uh, they felt from this. It teaches us, especially if we were, yep. we're not not immune, but by the same token, we were fortunate. And it, it's a really, uh, in, a, in a sense, it's a uh, it, it's a really positive. I, I get a very positive sense from both reclaiming this repertoire. And um, and understanding the circumstances under which some of this music was composed, and the fact that um, they they were able 
to create um, after all sorts of awful and um, depleting experiences. I think that's a that's an extraordinarily positive comment on on, um, on humanity. Heroic, I'd say. Yep. Uh, in a world that deeply needs positive heroes. But I'm not going <laughs> to forgive me for my 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 penchant uh, for expressing my attitude toward music. I I'm um, as I imagine you you yourself uh, recognize uh, a person who feels that this this gift we've been given to somehow express and even understand ourselves and others. Uh, human traits in this strange way uh, is a great blessing. Uh, and, and so I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, and uh, I'm grateful to hear that you are going to keep doing it from your, your side. So, Simon, I, I much appreciate your time and your bringing here and bringing us this music, uh, which I hope all of you will go out and purchase because I, I think that it's it's very important that uh, we we have representation of that form of art. Now I'm searching for the link. Oh yes, uh, that was provided to me. I hope I do this right. But the way to get um, this recording uh, online is the prefix https colon double backslash lnk lowercase dot lowercase to backslash capital A lowercase rc capital K lowercase l-e-b-a-n-o-v. I'll repeat that, forgive me, uh, because it's important. https colon double backslash uh, lowercase lnk dot to slash capital A lowercase rc capital K L-E-B-A-N-O-V. And so... And if I might, if yeah, I might add... Please. It's also available through all the usual channels, Amazon, Spotify, oh, um, all the, the normal uh, places that you would uh, either stream or purchase your music. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's certainly a worthy effort and, and a collection of the entire series uh, by itself is, is very much worthy of, of experiencing. And so then, uh, thank you once again, Simon Weinberg uh, from the ARC Ensemble Artistic Director. Thank you, Lou. Uh, for being with us. Uh, and until next time, this has been Lou Smoley for What's New in Classical Music. And please don't forget to make a contribution to the website to keep it a free service. Just go to our homepage at classicalpodcasts.com where you can donate any amount through PayPal.